0: This is Colin Hunter, and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. Delighted to be joined by Mita Malik today. Mita and I connected through an exercise. I was trying to find new voices to listen to. Um, wanted to remove my echo chamber uh, in terms of particularly around equity and diversity. And I was recommended to talk to Mita. Mita Malik uh, runs a, a podcast, very successful podcast we will talk about today, with Dee as our co-host. But she's got a very different, for me, take on the diversity and equity uh, challenges we've got. She works as a head of diversity or chief diversity officer in an organization and therefore comes from being a mother, her background experience of being an immigrant to the U.S., therefore the stories she's got of that and the bullying but also the uh, the stories about that she brings from her experience of changing that and she says there's progress been made still a lot of work to be done she's vocal um, she gets tired of shouting as, um, as as she will say in the podcast today but it's a fascinating exploration of some of the terms that we use around this area some of the stories um, but also some shocking stuff in terms of you know when i listen to Uh, this it always gets me in that mode of thinking that I'm a good person but I need to do more for what I uh, I believe in which is that equity uh, needs to be for everybody and the opportunity to change so it's great to talk to Mita and I'm sure that we are going to be having many conversations like this but here's 40 minutes of Mita talking about her story and background and some of the challenges in there. Enjoy. So tell me, how are you? Tell me what apart from your microphone not working, how are things go?
1: <laughs> things are going well. I was telling a friend, it's like for many of us, the last two and a half years have been a blur, have they yeah. not? The kids are both back in school and everyone's happy and healthy. And mm. I am feeling optimistic today. Good. But I also feel that you still watch the news and the pandemic has really sort of shown the inequalities in the world has it not because some of us are going back to our lives or what we would like our lives to be Mm. from before and there are others in parts of the world where that's not that's not the case and so that is really that sits heavy on me
0: i would agree i think also the latest surges in china i think you know you look at ukraine what's happening in ukraine and and even you know people celebrating the fact that macron won in france uh, against the far right, there's still the underlying forty-three or whatever it is, percent that's voted for far right. So yeah, it's it's out there. It's out there. But again, it's about what you can do about it, isn't it? And, and you talk about <laughs> let's Yes, it is. I'm reading reading an amazing book. I don't know if you've read it, but it's uh and I'd love your views and whether you like it or not. Dolly Chu, The Person You Mean to Be.
1: Oh, wow. No, I have not read that book. That title sparked to me, though. So
0: Yeah. Laszlo Bock is the other co-author of it. So it's a really nice book. It's about, for somebody who feels they're a good person, but actually wants to act as a good person, how would you do it? And that's her whole premise.
1: Well, Colin, here's my secret. The last book I read was Harry Potter, Sorcerer's Stone. Yes. (laughs) I have not been reading uh, any adult books. I read a lot of short form and I write quite a lot. But with books, you got to read it in one sitting, at least for me. I'll read it and then I forget what I read. So there you go. Maybe this uh, next chapter I'll start reading books again.
0: (laughs) I plug it in the audio. So I do my walks. I went out for the walk this morning, uh, and even if it's early.
1: That's a great idea.
0: Plug an hour and a half in. So tell us a bit about you and the background, because you've got a fascinating story. And as you said, we had a brilliant conversation the last time. Yeah. But, uh, it's, it's to get the the richness of your background would be useful for people listening.
1: Yeah. So my background starts with I'm the proud daughter of Indian immigrant parents. My younger brother and I were born and raised in the United States, spent most of our time in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about gender inequities, Colin, for me, it's not theoretical or academic. Mm. My parents left everything they knew behind, everyone they knew behind to start a new life for themselves. I would say in many ways, the the classic immigrant story. My Mm. dad's mother was married when she was 12 years old. My mother's mother was married when she was 10 years old. Mm -hmm. They had very large families and were simply remarkable women. And I don't think until I was older that I had an understanding of what it meant to be married when you were 10 years old. Hmm. And as my son is now nine turning 10, you start to think, wow, I am living proof of what progress when it comes to gender equity looks like in less than just three generations, and that's still happening in many parts of the world. So that's actually something I, I talk about more, mm. but something that's always been a part of who I am since I was born. And now, as an adult, it sits more heavy with me to think, "Wow, like, uh, this is what progress can look like with education and opportunities."
0: Tell me about the education and opportunities, because that's that's a story of your mother and everything else, and and your your experience here. But there's there's been progress, but it's been difficult, from what I understood from you. Yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, for me, that's so that's the backdrop of my family history. But I was, yeah. I always say the the funny looking dark skinned girl with a long funny looking braid whose parents spoke funny English until it wasn't funny anymore, and mm. I was a lot both verbally and physically growing up by my peers, they made me know every day that I did not belong in that community. And that's when I say, Colin, that when people ask me, like, what is the toughest part about this work? Inclusion starts at home. It starts Mm -hmm. at our kitchen tables. When we think things are funny, strange, lazy, odd, weird, that is when we start to stereotype individuals and that becomes the gateway to hate. And Mm -hmm. so now as I'm trying to raise kind, inclusive human beings, and I have a lot of children in my life through family and friends, that matters a lot, how we speak in front of and to the next generation. Mm. And so that's what I think about from my days of growing up is that I don't ever want anyone to feel like they don't belong. And that Mm. has been, whether I realized it or not, probably later in life, that that's my life mission and journey. Like, I want everyone to find their voice and to
0: use it. Mm. And tell me about your story from then. So the braids, the bullying, and because I I think for me, one of the things about reading this book we've just been talking about that you get there's so many aspects of diversity, equity, bullying, everything else that goes into it. And actually for, for, for certain people to go into a room and identify with other people in the room, is almost at the exclusion of others. So everybody's individual story is a powerful one. Tell us a bit more about your story from that yeah, point.
1: Yeah, so, so, I mean, growing up, I was teased, um, you know, called things to my face. I think when I was, I was probably around 11 or 12, I remember having racial slurs painted in front of our house. And I mm. don't remember, I didn't understand what the N word meant. The Mm -hmm. I just knew that they were not kind words, but Mm -hmm. my parents couldn't afford to repave the driveway. So we just had to wait for the New England weather to wash those words away. And so I thought to myself, wow, now as an adult, that's a hate crime, isn't it? Like someone Mm -hmm. in the town should have come and actually removed those words, which they did not. I mean, many things happened in my upbringing, but one of the things that was the most painful and pivotal was... I was in my freshman year of high school in ninth grade. I was really excited about a class called Intro to Physical Sciences. And there was two white boys who I had become their target. They, had, they, they were bullying me for some time. I had hair down to my knees. They would pull me like a horse in the hallway. One of them sat behind me and he would yank my head back down with my braid if I didn't pass the papers back fast enough. And one day during the lab portion of class, they decided to set my hair on fire mm-hmm. and they were standing behind me and they were lighting matches and they were throwing them into my braid. And I actually, what's, what I remember about that moment as well is like snickers, but that was not like the snickering and the laughing, but that was not unusual. And I didn't know what was happening until my lab partner who hadn't spoken to me in the entire time we worked together said, your, your hair's on fire. <laughs> and so that smell to this day, I can remember. And and what Colin, I think, is so important for me about that moment is that I was meant to feel like I had done something wrong. I also went to the principal's office with the two boys. We all sat together outside. They were suspended for one day, which is a podcast for another time. Wow. They came to terrorize me in that class. And I had a guidance counselor who really stepped up for me. That was the first time I saw allyship outside of my own home. Mm -hmm. And I think he had a sense that I could run fast. I'm not coordinated, but I can run fast, Colin. And so he asked me to join, at the time, cross-country and track. And it was for the first time that I felt that I was an equal on the playing field. That I wasn't super fast and I wasn't super slow, but I could certainly hold my own. And he saw that in me. And so Mm. that's a way for me to find community. But what I will say to you is that experience of having my hair set on fire is what's happening in our corporate workplaces today. It's an analogy because this is what happens to women of color Mm. all day, every day. And some of those things are visible and not that are happening. And so I Mm. never imagined that those bullies from the schoolyards would follow me into corporate America. No one prepared me for that. None of my education, none of my training prepared me for the, what would happen when I started my career. Hmm.
0: So that brings us to your work now, and I'm fascinated. Just tell people a bit about the work that you do now, because it's it's based on your experiences. It's based on that finding that the bullies have joined you in the corporate work, but something in there.
1: Yeah, I mean, the other thing that I didn't bring up at the beginning in my story is that I also when I didn't I didn't feel like I belonged in my community but I also mm. didn't feel like I belonged in the greater world. I did not grow up in the Instagram era. So I mm. never saw products or services that reflected me. I never yeah. saw I always wondered like who gets chosen and why? Like why does everyone look the same who's on screen or in books or in television? And that was why and to this day why I'm passionate about storytelling, I went to marketing. And so right now I'm the head of diversity, equity and inclusion at Carta, which Mm -hmm. is a fintech startup based out of San Francisco. And prior to that, I've had a long career in consumer product goods, no surprise in marketing, Mm -hmm. telling, you know, on a mission to include more people who look like me in storytelling. Mm -hmm. And so I think what's really changed, Colin, about diversity, equity and inclusion in the last two years is that it is about workforce and more. We can no longer ignore how products and services show up in the marketplace. We can no longer ignore supplier diversity and who we decide to write checks to and why and which communities we start to support. And we can no longer just post a Black Lives Matter image on Instagram and check the box as a company and say, OK, we're done.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, you can say you stand for values, but when are you ready to stand up for them? And whether it's from a U.S. or global perspective, we've seen there's a reckoning happening. Yeah. With companies who are pretending to stand up or not standing up, hmm.
0: and and for those those organisations, those people. I mean, it, for me, one of the the releasing bits that I found one was I did design thinking. I did looked at the startup. I looked at that world, and I started to look at the user at the centre. There's a really useful piece there that gets a lot of corporates and organizations to move forward, but without almost doing the work on their own bias, their own views, and their own thoughts behind it, which is it's almost the checkbox, and we're, our, our purpose is to remove those tick boxes. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we spend billions and billions. I don't know what the recent number is. I have to look up. U.S., global on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Just think about it, especially with, as my co-host of our Brown Table Talk podcast, Mm -hmm. DC Marshall coined, the diversity tipping point of May 2020 when corporate America finally said, yes, we understand that Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. And we spend so much money. There's so much innovation in this space. And yet I tell you, this work is personal and starts at home. This is what we're doing at Carta. It is inclusive culture's, are like this uh, I don't know, unicorn we're chasing. And we're like, you, you. inclusive cultures, like companies are made of people. So yeah. it starts with inclusive leadership. It starts with how I, Mita, show up every single day at work, hmm. right? And I have to realize that how I show up has a ripple effect on my team and the organization. And so that's the perspective I like to take. Inclusive cultures do not does not happen without holding individuals accountable. And so that's really my job is thinking about Colin like you as a leader what does your day look like mm. and all the things that you do how can I interrupt bias where can I help you think about things differently and as a result maybe you take a different decision or action that day
0: yeah because even without layering on equity diversity there's some simple pieces for for me I hold my hand up I had a moment in a board meeting where I was using sarcasm which is a British Comedy tool doing sarcasm, and there was a lady, a brilliant lady Mary, who's a good friend, called me on it and called not only me but a group of us on it, and said, you know, sarcasm is what's the lexicon of ripping flesh. But it was only when I came off that call, went to talk to my daughter, and she said, yeah, you do it all the time, and you do it to you know my sister, and and, and I suddenly I just had that moment of going, oh, wow. I think I'm a good person. But it's it's basic behavior in my context and mindset causes it.
1: Well, I'm glad you had that revelation. See, that's important. Those are the revelations people need to have, because once you have that aha moment, Mm. only you can choose to do something different. Right. Like I cannot force you to do something different. You have to choose to do something
0: different. And then you become a bit of an evangelist on the back end of it. And you start to go, right, sarcasm needs to be removed for (laughs) everybody. Well, hold on a second. I quite enjoy a bit of sarcasm. Right. So so there is this bit about even when you get self-awareness, and I love the. it begins at home. Because even the self-awareness, if I chat to my, my daughters, they will use sarcasm all the time back to me. It is about, and this is where some of the arguments about, well, we're trying to make it too good. I don't believe that, but we've got to start somewhere with ourselves and start to change what person we want to be in that context. Is that how you see it?
1: I do. I mean, I agree with you. Context matters. If you're sarcastic Mm. at home with your daughters and your family who know you and love you, there's Mm. a relationship there. You have to build. You have to work to build that relationship at work, right? And so yeah. if we're meeting for the first time, and I don't really know you that well. And you start using sarcasm. It is about intent versus impact, isn't it, Colin? Yeah. Like your intent yeah. isn't that, but it's how I felt at the end that matters, and that's what I coach leaders on. It's that no, sometimes you know I like to live my life thinking ninety nine percent of people actually have good intentions, and there are the one percent of people who must move on and get help. Yeah, right. Who must move on and get help? But most people don't enter situations, I like to think, and that's why I do this work, because I'm half glass full. My husband jokes, he's half glass empty, but I'm half glass full. (laughs)
0: Love it. I'm half glass full. (laughs) But
1: I'm not entering this conversation, Colin, thinking, oh, Colin did that intentionally. Now, if Colin does it repeatedly, then we need to have a conversation. But oftentimes it's not. And as you shared in the example with your colleague, the impact was, wow, that was a a really, what was the statement she said? Ripping of.
0: Ripping. is the lexicon of ripping of flesh. And that for me made it because I respect her, love her. And actually she was just, and the way she did it was beautiful because she just was direct, blunt, straight to the point.
1: Well, also what's, what's great about that example is the psychological safety exists in that relationship. So if it was someone new you were meeting, they might not have felt comfortable Mm -hmm. that to you. And then that you might've continued mm. continued on that track with that individual without understanding how they were feeling but it's amazing that you have that relationship so she could tell you something that you weren't seeing and how you were showing up mm. which is awesome
0: yeah so coming back to your role because it's a fascinating role for me and it's it's almost there's some tick box in quite a few organizations they set up an ide or D and i and they put somebody in who's either you know Join the side that skin color is right or the background is right and and then put it in and then and then they say right we've taken care of that so how would you go about your work being one of those people to, to daily to get this to change in the culture?
1: Well, I want to respond to what you just said. I think it's fascinating. You know, the the role of chief diversity officer, I don't know the exact stat, but if you look over the last year or two years, LinkedIn report, it's like doubled, tripled. It's 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 you could Google it right now. And there's like 100 roles open in one, one part of the market or globe for mm. chief diversity officers. And I had written yeah. two years ago, an article for Harvard Business Review, which is still quite relevant, called Do You Know Why You Need a Chief Diversity Officer? Because I was tired of getting calls for roles in the market, which were like, hey, Mita, you're going to report into Colin who's the president and you're going to have access to the board. But guess what? You're going to have no team or resources and you're going to pay get get paid what I paid you out of undergrad. I'm like, what? I think that there's also a big reckoning for organizations who, like you said, there's this check the box. I just need to get in a CDO so I can say I have one. And so, you know, when I took this role at Carta, I had a lot of conversations Mm -hmm. to say, which is what I talk about in this piece is that if you're going to hire somebody, let them know what they're walking into there are crisis. What do you need help with? Mm -hmm. What's the budget going to be? What's the team going to be? Are they going to have access to the exec team? Where does the role sit? And also I feel more and more, and this is a big part of what I do, is chief diversity officers have to have a seat at the table because inclusion is a driver of the business. So you cannot silo them into another part of the organization. Mm -hmm. I promise you, no matter what you're selling, if it's pen, lipstick, coffee, software, you are selling something to be profitable and whatever you're selling should have an inclusion lens.
0: I agree. And it, it also goes into the other aspects, doesn't it? Cause you're talking about neurodiversity. You're talking about, you know, even just think about the great migration, people leaving the culture of an organization, everything now. So that it's almost like people, equity and people blend and people are core asset of your organization. You got to do that. Yeah. It's fascinating. So Coming back to your role, then and because you're doing this role and then you're doing a podcast. Tell us a bit about the podcast, because that's a quite risky to be this is this and then to go into a voice piece, which is starting to talk about all these stories. But you're conscious about that. Yeah,
1: I am. And I have to be true to myself. And I also I also say this to people. People say, how are you so vocal and active in social media, how are you sharing all of your thoughts and you're working full time? And I say, yeah, I I would never indict my employer. I love Mm. where I work. And this is my advice to people. The Mm. moment you have something negative to say about your company is the moment you should no longer work there.
0: Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) You
1: know, for me, it's like, I've had a long career at this point. I'm talking about things that happened a long time ago. My podcast, Mm. Brown Table Talk, which is with my dear friend D.C. Marshall is a love letter to my younger self. Things that happened in my career, stories I'm sharing now, but also, Colin, more importantly, to have white men in my life reach out and say, wow, I didn't know these things happened. I wish I could have showed up for you differently then. And I was like, well, I wasn't willing to share. So we have many women of color. This podcast is really about helping women of color thrive in their workplaces We share lots of stories and tips at the end. I've had women of color say to us, it's like you're reading my personal journal. And then allies say, I didn't know any of these stories. I've never been privy to them. And so for them to understand how they can do better and be better. So it is from a positive place. Like I don't want other people to have these experiences. And so that's how I think, for me, it's all about putting out positivity into the world and leaving people with lessons to learn.
0: So, the your stories plus other people's stories, basically. You're bringing yeah, these
1: stories. And Dee's stories. Yeah. And you know, they're not my stories. They're our stories. Yeah. I, you know, talk about my work getting stolen, or Dee talks about as a Black woman, her hair being touched, and how often Black women's hair is touched in workplaces and outside of work without permission, mm. or, you know, the challenges I've faced in getting promoted. We did a, a recent. Episode which caused quite a stir when people from a US context constantly compliment me on how well I speak English. And so it's interesting because some of these topics are universal. If you went through our podcast episodes, you say, Yeah, everyone's been through that. I think what we're trying to share with people is that there is a difference. As a South Asian woman, as a black woman, what those experiences are like because context and perspective matters
0: and I, I presume that the that there's there's angles about giving people stories that actually resonate and go well i 'm not alone, and then there's positive action you know if, for change to happen so so how do you blend that because storytelling and everybody, there's this worry that there's a lot of sympathy goes on, but not a lot of action or empathy plus action on the back end of it from people. So it's useful to hear.
1: Yeah, our podcast is the podcast I would want to listen to because I'm a busy mm-hmm. mom of a six and nine year old. So I we created it. I created it for myself, decreated it for she's also quite busy. So they're usually less than 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. We share some stories at the beginning. There's a topic. And then we really leave tips at the end. Like, right. if you saw this happen in the workplace, what could you do differently? Yeah. What can women of color do differently? What can allies do differently? And the first season, Colin, we self-funded and did ourselves. And then LinkedIn came knocking, which was pretty cool. Yeah. And so we're yeah, now LinkedIn Podcast Network. And so yes. that's really exciting. And what's really interesting, Colin, is, and I know as a podcaster, you would get this, is that you put this material out there. And then it's kind of like a book club. Something Mm. really resonates with people and they want to continue the conversation. So we've been doing audio rooms on LinkedIn. LinkedIn has given us access to their their beta product. So we've been, after we drop an episode, we gather people to do an audio. And what's really interesting about this is that the Brown Table Talk community has taken off in a way we didn't expect, that this is not, we don't run this community. We're a part of it. We show up to do the, audio room which is 30 minutes d and i say a few things and let me tell you there's a line of people waiting waiting to talk like we don't need to say anything (laughs) like and saying, i heard this story on this episode you were all talking about i want to share my story or colin comes up to ask for advice and then someone else is giving you advice like d and i are just like there like that's that's when you know it's like you've hit on community like other people are there for each other
0: and it sounds like a real mixture of community as well for people who are allies. Don't talk to me about the allies, because for some people listening who don't know this space, and I'm, hopefully it's a few people, but I think there are quite a few people who don't know this space, then the allies for me has been a core part uh, of yeah. the work that you, you've been doing and other people have been doing in this space.
1: So I am, I always say this, I'll use myself as an example. I am on an ally to be a journey for the black community. Mm-hmm. My friend Dee, who identifies as black, she's the only one or anyone who is a Black friend or colleague, they're the only ones who can say I've been an ally for them. Like, Mm. I have no idea. I'm working hard at it. But if you ask her, is Mita an ally for the Black community, she's going to say yes or no, or she has more work to do. So there's humility in being Mm. an ally. It's not a card. I'm like, hey, I'm an ally. No, it's Mm. this humility of learning and trying to do better. And I think what's been fascinating, Colin, especially as I've had, allies reach out to me as they've listened to an episode and said, I didn't realize that black women had their hair disproportionately touched. And right. I didn't realize they received all this com- all these comments about their hairstyle. Or I had no idea you were the target of gaslighting hmm. and all of the everyday aggressions that you face. So part of it is for allies is the education and awareness. Like if you have, let's just be quite frank, if you've been self-segregating most of your life. And that happens, Mm -hmm. right? You would not have access to these stories. And so we're giving you unfiltered access to stories you might not have listened to or heard before. And then we're asking you, if you show up at work the next day or in the next few weeks, and you see these things happening, just be more aware and think about how you can check in on the person who's being impacted, but then also what can you do? Mm. Like, how can you help and intervene?
0: Yeah. There's a lady called Gloria Cotton who did a, a piece and she talks about being positively inclusive, you know, positively and, and working there. Because I think a lot of people would say, well, I'm a good, but actually the action is a, it's a core bit. So signing up as an ally is one thing, but actually you're right. Understanding and being able to really be on the side of really understand what's going on is, is a difficult piece.
1: I will, like one of the stories that we talk about that I shared on the podcast, and this happened many years ago, what to do if you are... Renamed at work or your name is mispronounced. So, my full name is actually Madhumita. Mm-hmm. A lot of different reasons. I wrote about this in Fast Company. I ended up coming into the corporate world with Mita, and I'm very happy that my name is Mita Malik. But my full name is Madhumita. And years ago, when I graduated from graduate school, I entered the workforce being like, I'm going to reclaim my name because my name mm. has been a source of pride, shame, exhaustion love. It's been hard, right? Being mm-hmm. raised in a country where people can't pronounce your name or don't want to. So I remember starting this job and I wanted to go by mother Mita. My manager couldn't pronounce it, which was fine. So I gave him the option of Mita. Mm-hmm. He decided he thought it would be funny to rename me Muhammad. And so for about, I don't know, six, seven months, I don't remember. I'm even embarrassed as I share this with you. I responded to a name that was not my own. Mm. Muhammad, it's time for lunch. Muhammad, let's get the sales samples. Muhammad, the agency's here. And so that's a moment where I talk about the power dynamics. This was my manager. I was junior. I didn't feel comfortable saying to him, Stop calling me Muhammad. I was embarrassed and mortified. Here's my question, Colin Where were his peers? Yeah, There were all those people who heard him calling Mah- me Muhammad and thought it was funny and laughed. So that's what I talk about in terms of like allyship and advocacy. Right. So if Colin had been there many years ago, he might've gone up to this person, pulled him aside separately, said, Hey, what, what, can you call her This is not acceptable. Mm. Like you might think this is funny. This is not. No. Right. And so that's, that's what I try to shed a light on. Right. Is that, mm. you know, I hope. I know that's happening to other people hmm. right now. And so can someone else intervene when that person is in a position where they can't? Like I wasn't in a position. I was the most junior person on the team.
0: It's it's an interesting one for me because I've got a good client friend I've known for years. And I've always called him Mustafa. Or, sorry, Mustafa. I've always called him Mustafa. Mustafa. And it was only another person, a black man who works for this company who came and he was talking to me. He said, do you realize you've been mispronouncing this supposed person that is your best friend for years and years? And I went, no. Wow. And he said, OK, this is, most of her. This is how you should pronounce it. And I was like, OK. So it took me a while and I fumbled over it and I became really embarrassed. But there was a shame to that. There was a shame to, to work in. So. I've tried to counter the book again, picked up a story of somebody's name couldn't be pronounced. And the first time somebody actually tries to do it, this lady burst into tears because it's the first time anybody ever tried, at least, to pronounce it. See,
1: that's so beautiful. That's what I want people listening to take away is that yeah. trying matters, the showing up yeah. matters. And mm. anyone who consistently tries and says, keeps calling me Mita, but says they're trying to get it better, I'm like, great, I'm here for it, right? Yeah. yeah like, at least you keep saying that you're trying. Yeah. A- and that's what matters rather than mm. consistently, you know, doing it on purpose Right. We've been there because I'm not because what it signals to me is if you don't want to learn how to pronounce my name or by the way, Colin, my latest pet peeve, do not misspell my name. There is no excuse. I'll take the autocorrect one or two times. But after that, no, there's no excuse. It it shows that I'm not valued and you don't respect Mm. me. Right. Mm -hmm. That I am not worthy enough of you even bothering to yeah. learn how to pronounce my name and to acknowledge me. And and here's what it is. It goes back to names were given to us by people who had big hopes and dreams for us. So yeah. let's honor that. Let's honor that. that someone gave us the name. Mm, Amazing. Yeah. Like, isn't yeah. that a wonderful thing to think about? Like, all of us are by people who were like, wow, this person's going to be meaningful in this world. And this is why I'm choosing Colin or Mita or whatever.
0: Yeah and it is funny how just even to take my daughter's we gave her a daughter's name Marie Elise hyphen Marie hyphen elise, and it became so difficult for people to pronounce it when they first came in French name, and so so how do you you know and I used to have this stack, which was it's like Marie. Yeah. With the Lotus Elise car, you know, and you'd have this, but it was for a reason. And now Marie Elise, we love it. Yeah. But actually a lot of her friends are called Remy. So it's shortness, but but that's her choice. That's, that's her, her choice. choice to live with it. And it's, um, I want to come back to this, this other bit that you were talking about in terms of calling some behavior because I had an amazing conversation with somebody because a lot of people's reactions from my place, and for those who are not looking at this and don't know, I'm a white, heterosexual male, 57 years old. Um, I have privilege, all of those things. And some of our reaction is when I hear racist or see racist behavior, and I saw it from somebody I know very, very closely, my immediate choice was, I'm not gonna be their friend anymore. Yeah, I'm gonna walk away from this. And I was almost quite proud of being a good person for walking away. And it was this same person who called me on the name who said, "No, you shouldn't. You got to stay in there. You got to, you know, what's the point of you wasting that relationship as an opportunity to change?" So, what what's your views on that? Because you must get quite a bit of that.
1: I think that it's easier to walk away, and if you have an established relationship with this person you have an opportunity in a window to help them change. Now, at some point, you have to protect your own mental energy, right? It depends on how much. Now, listen, this is what I talk about from a U.S. perspective. Our uh, companies are just as divided as our families. Mm. You can't. Sometimes it's easier to walk away from friendships. You can't from family, right? You can't, no. but it's harder sometimes. And so that is why, you know, I choose to do this work within the system, I have been working for corporations my entire career. I have friends who work in the nonprofit sector, in the public sector, government sector. I have friends who are working outside the system. When you choose to work within the system and you get a paycheck from a company as a CDO, you have to meet people where they are. I don't have a choice Mm -hmm. to walk away. And so I also like that challenge. Mm -hmm. I want to find a window and help move people on their journey. Because if I... Get to know someone really well and know their story. I think I can move
0: them. Yeah, and it's interesting using storytelling to to shift their story.
1: Several years ago, I had somebody who was on the exec team who was really was not interested in the DEI agenda. Was one mm-hmm. of the people who you know, would show up when I presented at board meetings and things like that, but didn't really have much of an interest. And it was one day he showed up in my office to say, I'm actually really interested um, in sponsoring the ERG for individuals with disabilities. Hmm. I said, oh, really? Why? Tell me more. And his father had recently started using a wheelchair. Hmm. He had confided that story in me. And all of a sudden, it showed up as one of the biggest sponsors, as one of our employee resource groups. And so everyone's story is being constantly rewritten. Colin, we've seen that in the last two years. Like everything we thought was a story was erased and rewritten. And mm. so just watch for that as you get to know people and life experiences. Things change. Mm. And so people's connection to this work changes as well.
0: Yeah. And if somebody asks you the question about how do you define diversity, You know, and equity. Well, I mean, two words, but let's take diversity first, because I was chatting to somebody the other day and even just gender specific, but there was diversity of a gender with a woman with children and family versus one without. And then there was a conversation around menopause, which, you know, in certain societies like Asia or India, menopause is not mentioned. Mm -hmm. That isn't isn't talked about. So how do you define your role?
1: I think diversity is multidimensional. Right now, people can't see us. They can hear us. But if you see me or Google me, I appear as a brown woman, as a woman of color. I'm a mother. I'm very vocal about that. I was raised a Hindu. I mean, I could go on and on about, Mm. you know, how I identify. And also, Mm. the privilege I've held throughout my career. Because oftentimes, when we think about that, and that's a conversation for another time, Colin, but like, you know, when we, when we use hear the words white privilege, people often mm. shut down, but we all have had privilege in our life. For me, it hasn't had to do with race, right? Mm. The privilege I hold hasn't had to do with race, but I've gone to two top universities. I've mm. had access and opportunity, right? So it just depends on your life story, but yeah. the diversity, there's so many dimensions now mm. and there's things that you can't see. Right. Yeah. Uh, I will say though, I do find that diversity of thought has become coded language. So Mm -hmm. diversity of thought doesn't happen without diversity of representation. And I think the real reckoning right now for corporations is the lack of black talent, the lack of black voices specifically in rooms. Mm -hmm. And and so that's why I choose to be specific because we don't want to use coded language or we don't want to sugarcoat. No, it is about black voices Latinx, Hispanic, um, and even as we're seeing with the rise of Asian hate crimes, right? And that connection Mm. to corporate America that, you know, Asian colleagues might appear to have the majority, but statistics will show that many of them are not also represented in the exec team or boardrooms and their career stall very early in some cases when you think about the model minority myth. So Anyways, I like to be specific.
0: Yeah, no, I love it. Well, it's, I mean, it, unless you're getting specific, it's very difficult to tell a story around it and and focus in there. So it's an important part. So so if anybody uh, wants to, to reach out and, and what episode, one episode of your podcast, because I'm always asked this, what's the one episode you listen to of your own podcast? And we always talked at the beginning that what we talked at the beginning about, we never listened to our own episode. But if there was one episode that you can remember, you just think, this is passion.
1: Oh, my God. That's like asking me to choose who my favorite kid is, which my children uh, do to me often. I was right? just about to say. <laughs> often they do that to me. That's not fair,
0: Colin. Um, okay. One topic then. Let me do a topic. Oops.
1: You know what? Here's an interesting one I'll have people listen to. It's called uh, How to Stop Being Indispensable. And mm. it's a actually a piece I wrote in the Harvard Business Review that we ended up talking about in the podcast. But I was trained Colin to be dispensable. Mm -hmm. You're You're my boss. I show up for you. I go above and beyond. I'll do anything and everything. And that actually, in my career, temporarily killed it because I could not get off this person's team because I had become so valuable. And also I had taken on all the wrong things like I was doing everything and anything and not strategic thinking uh, I just want to get promoted I just want to get to my next opportunity and I do think there is the struggle for women of color who are always the number two right mm-hmm always the deputy, always next in line. And so what happens when you become indispensable Mm -hmm. and you have people who are talent hoarders, like they don't want you to move on because quite frankly, I make your life easier. So that's an interesting, what I like to do is I like to take topics that we've talked about for a while, but then flip it, right? Because my Mm. entire life I was raised to be indispensable. And now I'm like, actually, I don't know if it served me all that well.
0: It's that culture of knowledge, isn't it? I mean, you know, from the, your parents' background, that's what I'll talk to a lot of my coaches who are from an Indian background. They would talk about, as long as I got my degree and I'm yes. knowledge, but actually the flip round for them to get be coaches and show wisdom and listen
1: yes.
0: is an engaging piece, isn't it? It's fascinating. Yes,
1: it's, yeah.
0: yes it is. Yeah, it is. I, I love our conversation. And you say we're probably about, this is version one, we'll do version two, version three, because there's so much to talk about.
1: Yes, please.
0: If, the, if there was one thing that you're working on this year that is in your mind with everything going on in the world, what's, what do you think is the, the one thing that is is going to be really critical this year in the work that you do that you want people to pay attention to?
1: And there's so many things. The thing that I will say, people ask me what's critical, what's on top of mind for DE&I, what keeps me up at night. I am just, Colin, shocked that more people are not talking about the devastating impact the pandemic has had on women and women in the Mm. workforce. And I will only quote the U.S. stats right now. It is widely reported and known that women's workforce participation in the U.S. is down to levels that we haven't seen since the 1980s, Colin. 1980s. That's four decades of progress wiped out. And we know for white women, women of color, as we talked about diversity, intersectionality, women ageism, women over 50 who are unable to get back into the workforce, jobs that have disappeared. And also what I talk about is the, the pandemic gap year bias. Mm-hmm. If I left two years ago and I'm trying to get back now into the workforce, we know statistically I am less likely to get called back for interviews. And so that is what I'm just sort of baffled i mean listen i'm tired i'm tired of screaming yeah some rest and i'll scream again but i just can't for the life of me why more companies and leaders aren't talking about this i'm talking about it but what can we all be doing and i'm telling you colin it just takes each of us if you can just find one woman to mentor to help her get back into the workforce imagine the tipping point
0: there's a brilliant place to leave this i'd love to invite you back let's pick up on the next piece. If people want to find you, where would they find you? Where would they find the podcast? Just so. uh,
1: yeah, thank you for asking. Please follow me on LinkedIn. I love to have conversation there. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. I started a TikTok channel. Oof, I'm trying to get into Ooh, it. I right know <laughs> you so did. Video is not. I love writing. Right? If I could write all day, so writing is my format. Yeah, I have a little TikTok channel. I also would love for you to go to Apple or Spotify and listen to Brown Table Talk. Thank you so much yeah. for having me, Colin.
0: Oh, pleasure. Really good to speak to you and uh, speak to you soon, hopefully. Thank you. Well, folks, that was Mita. Mita Malik. And when I talk to certain people who I know that I want to keep in my life because of the, the guide they can be, the advisor, the, the mentor, and the coach they can be for me, then she's one of the, those people. Uh, loved our conversation. felt very, very natural. Also, just some of the sharing from my side, hopefully, was useful for those who are listening who come from that, inverted commas, wanting to be a good person and, and wanting to, to do something positive in a, a way of action. Hopefully, brings that from today's conversation. What I always am shocked, and but. It's so good to hear is some of the stories that that we can use to to start to change the conversations that people are having, and some of the work that she's doing in our organisation, but also with the Brand Table podcast, uh, which is fantastic, well worth a listen. As she says, she's a mother who has very little time, so she keeps them under twenty-four, half an hour, twenty-four minutes of time. And if you get to listen to them, they are uh, they're well worth listening to in terms of topics and stories and tips that are very useful in terms of whether you're an ally or you're somebody going through what they're talking about in there. So I loved our conversation today. And as I say, I'll be welcoming me back at some point soon. And I'll welcome you back for another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast very shortly.